Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 69 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. Today we're going to cover three recent oral arguments, two of which cover different aspects of one case, Gilbert versus Sycamore Municipal Hospital, 156 Illinois 2nd, 511 from 1993. We will cover these two cases first in the first segment, and then we're going to also cover CTA versus Pryor, a, an appellate first district case where Justice Michael Hyman uh, was presiding. Let's turn to the two Gilbert cases. In Campbell Henry versus Good Samaritan Regional Health Center, the Illinois Appellate Court 5th District considered whether the settlement with a treating physician who has the alleged, who was the alleged agent of the clinic foreclosed the claims against the clinic on the basis that the release of the agent is the release of the principal. The trial court entered summary judgment in favor of the clinic. The plaintiff argued that, number one, that the pleading made claims against the clinic that were independent of the alleged negligence of the settling doctor, despite those allegations not being on a separate account as required by 735 LCS 5-2603 and the absence of a 622 as the alleged negligence of the nursing staff. Secondly, that the order dismissing the doctor specifically allowed for the claims against the clinic to proceed. And third, that the clinic did not object to the settlement or the motion for good faith finding. In the second case, Brown versus Mercy Hospital and Medical Center, the Illinois Appellate Court First District considered the usual aspect for which Gilbert decided whether a doctor is the apparent agent of the hospital, even though the doctor is an independent contractor. That's the way that most doctors are uh, in the current healthcare regime. The form signed by the deceased on five occasions stated that some staff may be contractors and then listed categories that were, including cardiologists, which the defendant doctors and alleged apparent agents were. The trial court entered summary judgment in favor of the hospital on the issue despite the doctors wearing insignia of the hospital, officing at the hospital, and only ever seeing the deceased at the hospital. Pat, tell us about oral arguments in these two uh, cases. And interesting that two cases uh, talked about this uh, same uh, decision within the same week. Well, same day. Uh, same day in, in different courts. Uh, one, the second one's in the first district. The first one's in the fifth district. And the two different aspects of this really seminal case in Illinois medical malpractice law. Um, and as Dan quite rightly said, it, it deals with how modern um, the economic arrangements between doctors and, and, and healthcare care providers. And it's certainly since 93 when this was uh, when this case was handed down, that process has accelerated where you used to have. You know, doctors practiced a lot like lawyers and small practice groups. You know, people focusing lawyers on large, large law firms, like similar to the ones that Dan and I work at. But the vast majority of lawyers work in settings of fewer than 10. And that used to be the same thing with doctors. And that is not right. the case anymore. Most doctors, uh, certainly in large metropolitan areas and even in rural areas, are working for large health systems in one fashion or another. So this is really important stuff. So 
Let's talk about the first case, uh, the uh, Campbell-Henry case. So, you know, who really objects to the other guy settling, especially when it's your client's business partner? You know, they're, for lack of a better term, it's not the right term, the employer, and especially in a medical malpractice case where finger pointing is verboten. You know, as Dan was reading this, I was curious as to, they mentioned there was a good faith finding. A good faith finding would have only been necessary if there was a counterclaim for contribution between the doctor and the hospital. And that is very unusual. Right. In Cook County, that is not done. Uh, counterclaims between the, the defendants is just not done. But here, apparently it was, but they didn't object. And, and really, you don't have much of a basis to object, even though you should, which is a whole separate discussion under the Illinois <laughs> Contribution Act, uh, which I have discussed and written about quite a bit in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. What? But yeah. <laughs> yes, I have. Um, so counsel for the hospital, um, when he gets so, so they ask the, they ask this lawyer, they say, well, you didn't object to the settlement and you said the case is going to go on against the hospital. And he said, you know, I didn't think about it at the time. I always thought about Gilbert in this second issue with the apparent agency stuff. I never thought about if I release the agent, then I release the hospital. And their claim is, is that all the claims... Of, of medical negligence were against the doctor and none of them were of the institutional variety against the hospital. And counsel for plaintiffs was like, no, you got to look at paragraph 15 where we allege all these different allegations. And some of these are testing for potassium and this guy had a heart attack or something and testing for potassium. And the doctor's not doing that. That's the nursing staff that screwed that up, didn't chart it properly or what have you. You know, they're the ones that let this guy go home when he shouldn't have been allowed to go home. Not the, not, not the doctor. Um, and you kind of go in between, you know, look at some paragraph B and C and E and all this. And you're going, well, you shovel them all up in one. What do you expect? Right. Um, right. You know, you kind of have, if you've got claims for institutional negligence, plead account for institutional negligence, then plead a separate account for vicarious liability, and we wouldn't be here. Right. They also needed to have a 622. Now, 622, for those that don't know, is the affidavit of merit. A doctor can only comment on actions of a doctor and it has to be in the same field. So a cardiologist can't say that a neurologist did something wrong, for example. Likewise, we, go ahead. We, we, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, we, we had a situation like that where there were experts that were not in the same field. and uh, Right, they got to be in the same field. And likewise, sure. And likewise, a doctor can't typically comment on the standard of care for a nurse. Now, he might be able to comment on the causation that, you know, the nurse didn't do this and therefore that caused this, but he can't say, the doctor can't say the nurse should have done that because what's he know about nursing? Well, maybe a right. lot, but he ain't a nurse. So he can't right. say that he's a doctor. Um, he gets to talk about what doctors do. Now what about nurses do? So I, I, I the, the court really focused on this, uh, really focused on this order and what changed and why you didn't object what you know uh, didn't object at the time and this real problem that the the plaintiff should have realized when he dismissed his claim against the doctor having settled with the doctor that this releases the agent I mean think about it this way if you know this is a very standard principle of agency law the principal if he's a vicariously liable can only be liable for things that the that the agent did but if it's right. But on an institutional claim, it's a much different situation. Those are independent. Those are those are direct claims right. of institutional claims. The nurses, unlike the doctors, are employees of the hospital. 
so they don't you don't have these issues. So that's kind of a that that that's it's I don't know how that's going to turn out. We'll talk about that at the end about how it's going to turn. Yeah. It's very interesting. Uh, be careful how you draft your pleadings, folks. Um, as, so, as we've said many times in many instances, you have to know what you're asking for, and and uh, you have to set a roadmap for where you want to get to. It has to be clear, otherwise you potentially suffer this type of potential, you know. Exactly. Uh, so to be clear, summary loss. judgment was entered in favor of the hospital saying you released the claims and it had the complaint been a little clearer, perhaps that wouldn't have been the result. We'll see what the appellate court does with it. So the main issue in Gilbert is this apparent agency issue. And this is the one in Brown. And I mentioned before that the defendants in medical malpractice case don't want to point fingers at each other. And this is the place where you kind of counsel for the doctors has to really walk a tightrope between wanting to embrace the big money of the big hospital, because typically these doctors have only got about a million dollars and oftentimes they're dealing with a death case and all they got is a million and the doctor has a house he wants to continue to live in. Right. Uh, and so he, he and, and kids he wants to put through school and so forth. <laughs> so I'll give you an example that's not in the medical malpractice case, but the medical malpractice context, but it's a similar. I've mentioned it several times. I represented uh, a company in arising out of an $83 million casino fire. I had the subcontractor. I was holding on to the general contractor and their $75 million of insurance for dear life. We we needed every penny because sure. their money plus our money made enough money in the event we were liable <laughs> to, to pay off any judgment. Right. So holding on for dear life. Now put yourself in the position of the doctor. With a million dollars, you've got a dead person, you know, middle-aged, very, you know, person with a lot of economic damages, a lot of non-economic damages, children, wife, the whole bit, very valuable case, pain and suffering, everything going on, worth well more than his typical $1 million, and that's all he's got. Um, and so they want to latch on to the hospital, you know, because they need that. But they also don't want to make the hospital mad. Right. They want to continue to work at the hospital, number one, <laughs> and, and they don't want the hospital to turn their guns on them. So it's a very delicate dance on this about, you know, who I worked for, what I did, who I, you know, and now the dance is, you know, the the the, the flip side of that is they got to be truthful. I mean, they're under oath, they're testifying at deposition, you know, what, so it comes down to things like, um, what you know? What clothes? What were you wearing? So a lot of times they'll have a thing on there that says, you know, in this case, Mercy Hospital, right. and it'll say, and there might be a sign though in the waiting room that says, "Doctors are not or may not be uh, employees." This is particularly pre prevalent in the emergency room context, where the right. person comes in, they've got some emergency, it's the emergency room, and they sign the form. So the form becomes up a big deal. Well, nobody's reading that form, okay? Right. Now, in this case, this woman was not an emergency room. She went to go visit cardiologists at this hospital um, who had offices there. And that was one thing that one of the justices, I think Justice Cobbs, picked up on. It's like, hold it. There are offices at there. Where, where, the other case you're citing, counsel's got offices someplace else. Uh, isn't this a question of fact? How can it be a summary judgment on the vicarious liability claims? Because just so we be clear on the flip side, this case is on the vicarious liability claims hospital out because there yep. were no institutional claims. These were failures of the doctors to provide appropriate cardiac care. So there are no institutional claims. These aren't nursing claims or these kinds of things. The hospital's out. Right. Um, this is the flip side of Campbell Henry where the person was being treated in the hospital and they've got institutional claims along with the vicarious liability claims. 
allegedly. Well, whether they do or not is what the appellate court's going to have to sort out there. So the you've got, you know, what clothes are they wearing? What's this form say that Dan mentioned? You know, they may not be employees, this kind of an idea. But then it lists all the ones that aren't employees and cardiologists are on the list. And they're like, this is not, this is not uh, ambiguous. It's plain. And counsel for the hospital kept coming back and saying, you know, the court has held that in situations where the form is clear, it's very difficult for the plaintiff to get around that and claim that there's uh, not a, what a reasonable person would think about uh, whether the, the doctor was an employee of the hospital or not. Um, other things that, that you know, may, they may look at is, um, you know, as I said, the clothes that they wear, the signs, the, the form, the office, all these different factors that are looked at. And sometimes this gets to a jury. They can't tell if the form is ambiguous and the clothes said mercy and the, there was no sign and this kind of a thing that maybe a jury might have to sort it out to figure out whether they were apparent agents or not. And you'd be pretty sure they're going to find that they were apparent agents. Right. <laughs> so the hospital is trying desperately to get out on summary judgment on this because that way they can, in this case, at least they would be, they would be done because it didn't seem that there were institutional negligence claims that were, that were present here. Um, but it's an objective standard. What would an objective person uh, think? And, and it kind of has to be because, like so many of these cases, the person who was signing this form five times is no longer with us. So she right. can't tell us what she could would have said, even if it were a subjective standard. There's nothing <laughs> there's nothing for her to say. Um, right. And so what does an objectively reasonable person think? Whenever that came up in my first year contracts class, my professor would draw. He had a stick man he had drawn on the board. I don't know. Ask him. He is the objectively reasonable person, the, the stick person. And he would point to this. Ask him. I'm not objectively reasonable. I'm a law professor. I don't know from objectively reasonable, but he does. They go ask 12 people. They'll tell you what's objectively reasonable. So this is one of those situations. Contract law, agency law oftentimes intersect, and this is one of those places where it does. Um, so a very important set of cases for really the heartland of a lot of claims in medical malpractice. And hopefully you understand a little bit more about how that works, at least in Illinois, on these kinds of claims. These are claims are fought all the time. Um, in Illinois, it's it, it's a huge fight, and it really flavors and colors how um, these uh, these cases play out. For certainly from the defense perspective, my former firm, we were I didn't do it, but a lot of my former colleagues principally represented doctors, so they were the ones walking this tightrope, uh, as opposed to some other lawyers who may represent uh, the hospitals and the institutions on 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 more occasions. So it was just a difference in how they who their clients were and who they had relationships with. Dan, did we cover the waterfront on that one? I think you did. And, you know, I just think, think always my dad, uh, uh, his doctors are all at resurrection hospital, which is now Amita health, um, on the Northwest side of Chicago. He now lives in independent living across the street. And, and some of the things you talked about, Pat are, are prevalent at that hospital. You know, all of his doctors, his, his regular, uh, physician, his, his eye doctor, everybody have offices in that big complex that's on uh, Telcott or, or mm -hmm. Peterson. Sure. And um, that's how it is in most of these hospitals, right? So, so to your point, it's very confusing, right? Because you go there, you think, well, this is just part of the Resurrection Hospital, uh, Amita healthcare system, right? But it, um, again, uh, like you said, most of the forms and stuff you sign, most of the things when he's in the hospital, you know, it's always, you know, they're independent contractors. So, it, it, you know, and um, 
like you said, uh, you know, if you get to a jury, it's the 12 jurors that are going to decide what an objectively reasonable person is. And, you know, in Cook County, oftentimes you're going to get a, what's objectively reasonable is, is whatever rings the bell for, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the plaintiff. And so, um, I posted about this yesterday on LinkedIn and I had a cartoon I found uh, that's yeah. apropos of that. This, this doctor is talking to this patient. She's sitting up in bed. The doctor comes in and she says, yes, I am a doctor. And yes, I work at the hospital. But why would you think I work for the hospital? She says. So <laughs> I mean, that kind of sums it up. It, it perfectly sums it up. So I think we've covered this. I think so. With that, uh, we'll we'll take a break and come back with segment two: Prior versus Chicago Transit Authority. We're back for our third case today, but the second segment because we've covered two cases in the first segment. Uh, episode sixty-nine of the Podium and Panel Podcast: Prior versus Chicago Transit Authority a first district case involving a person who went off of the platform at Roosevelt. So this is an outside, for those that aren't familiar, this is an outside uh, platform of the of the L, not in the subway, but in the elevated tracks. Um, and questions of duty, uh, of whether the conductor had a duty to stop and when, what speed, and these kinds of things. The panel was comprised of Justices Paczynski, Coughlin, and Hyman, who was presiding. Um, there were some audio challenges up front with Justice Hyman asking, can you hear me now? Apropos of the Verizon commercials from uh, from uh, several years ago. So the questions are, what duty, if any, does the Chicago Transit Authority owe a customer on the platform that walks in front of a train as if as it comes into the station? Now, I say customer and not passenger because you aren't a passenger owed the heightened duty of care until you are actually on the conveyance. Right. It's important. That's a point that counsel made and that uh, counsel for the appellant agreed to. That he was only a customer, not owed the heightened duty of care. He was saying even if he was owed a heightened duty or even if it was owed an ordinary duty of care, that was breached. But what's the duty? So that's the question the Illinois Appellate Court will answer when it decides prior versus CTA that was recently argued. The circuit court dismissed the case under 735 ILCS 5-2-619A9 following discovery, which is an interesting procedural posture. We've discussed that kind of motion to dismiss, which is this kind of hybrid thing that Illinois has. It's rather unique. But they did a lot of discovery, including experts in this case, right. some experts in this case. In ascertaining the duty, the, the court will have to grapple with the following. Does the duty change if the station is outside, like this one, when the conditions are foggy, rainy, misty, as described by an independent witness, but not shown in any of the four videos that show the incident? And Justice Coughlin, in particular, was all over this video. She's like... You know, I, I can see what happened here. I don't need your expert, right. basically. And there, and there are four different angles. Or four different, four different angles, exactly. Yeah. Does the railroad operator have a duty to reduce speed under those conditions, or is it acceptable for her to have entered the station at 35 miles an hour, the maximum allowable speed, where she says that her visibility was not reduced? Now, people may say 35 sounds like awful fast. I had this conversation with someone on LinkedIn this morning that I posted. Says that seems that. awful fast. I said, well, on the red line trains, going south on or north and south on, on the Dan Ryan or the blue line going north to O'Hare, those things keep up with the cars. They do. So, and in the train and in the subway, they go even faster. So right. they, they, and they need to, especially in the subway to keep the air moving through. Right. So it's part of the overall scheme that that's, that's at the beginning of the station. She then has, pl you know, hundreds of feet to slow down after that. Cause these stations are half a football field, 50 yards, at least in some stations. At least. 
maybe and even some more stations. Yeah, a hundred. Some, some of the yeah. downtown uh, stops are are probably a football field. I mean, they're exactly. Just, they go know, on hundreds of feet, right. t- tens they, of cars. Basically, the red line underneath goes the entirety length of the loop. Right. Um, it doesn't. You can walk all the way down uh, right. from stop to stop. So. And they, you know, they don't get up very much speed because the stops are like every couple blocks. Um, so does, is the duty changed if she, the train operator saw him? But when she saw him, he was a distance from the blue tactile strip that abuts the rail right away. So there's this foot and a 18 inch tactile strip that's right up against where you enter in. And he hadn't gotten there yet. When he saw her, saw this person from a distance, he was, you know, kind of in the middle of the, in the middle of the stop. Right. Um, there was a lot of discussion over the facts and the plaintiff claimed that he was a discovered trespasser that triggered, he argued, application well, his, of the... His rec- family did. He, yeah. he wasn't around to argue. No, by he, yes, that's fair enough, yes. Uh, triggered the application of the Quiros versus CTA case that the Supreme Court recently granted PLA on. The plaintiff contended that the rail operator, had she reduced her speed to 6 to 15 miles an hour, she would have had enough time to and distance to have stopped the train by her own admission if she had applied the emergency brake. She also didn't uh, sound her horn, which uh, which they claimed was a mistake. So, for its part, the CTA urged application of the open and obvious doctrine, and that the decrease and that the decreased speed simply, or the, the deceased simply walked in front of the moving train, and the video shows insufficient time for the train to have been stopped, and that when the rail operator saw the deceased, he was in a zone of safety and only moved towards the danger as the train approached. Uh, one issue that arose was whether to wait or not for the Quiro's decision to be decided by the Illinois Supreme Court. Dan, why don't you tell us more about the oral argument, and then I'm going to have some other comments on the broader issue that's really sure. at stake here. Thanks, Pat. And a couple things. You mentioned the blue strip. So those that are not familiar with the CTA uh, trains, as Pat said, it's very clear and distinguishable. It's it's about 18 inches. It's got rough, uh, rougher uh, uh, texture. So that again, you know, kind of, you know, whether whether you're uh, have, have your your sight impaired or whatever, it kind of your rumble stick or or whatever or your feet would tell you that you're on different territory, just like kind of the rumble, the uh, 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 things on the highway. If you you know fall asleep and drive and you start to hear or rumble, at, or at any intersection in the right. city, there's tactile strips everywhere for sight impaired people, so that right. they know they're coming up to the street. Right. And so the the other thing I want to talk about, Pat, is that we uh, covered a case that had to do with discovery of, of video cameras by the of the CTA by the Sun Times on, on one of the episodes of the podcast. So uh, as we mentioned, there are four cameras. Um, the the uh, CTA um, uh, has cameras everywhere on these platforms for a variety of reasons, including safety. Uh, things happen on these these uh, stops at night and during the day, and so. Um, uh, as Pat said, uh, Justice Co- Coglin was asking a lot of questions about, look, I, I looked at the four videos, you know, some of the, uh, one of the witnesses, a standby witnesses that, that saw this event said it was foggy out and misty and, and that there was no visibility. Um, um, and so, uh, a lot of questions about that. So, and it can be there. I've been, it I've been be. to that yeah. because it's, it's, it's less than a mile from the lake. At that point, and it's 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 straight. Roosevelt stop is due east or due west of the museum campus, so yep. it's right by the uh, it's right by the lake, and and there's nothing to obstruct fog and whatnot rolling in yep. from the lake. 
And so, so as you as you mentioned, uh, uh, Pat, um, J- Justice Hyman right out of the box, as we've talked about uh, on this uh, podcast often, uh, Justice Hyman lets us know where he's at uh, from a poker perspective. And so, right out of the gate, uh, the the uh, sometimes when we listen to panels, even in the first district, they'll give the instructions: "Hey, you get ten minutes, and then we're going to ask questions." Not Justice Hyman, never. And, he and, even uh, says we're going to treat you just like we were in the courtroom. It's what yeah, he says. Yeah, and so he 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 lived up to his promise. He said, "We know the facts. Does it really matter whether a trespasser or passenger?" Uh, the appellant said, "Not owed the highest duty of care." And then Justice Hyman asked if, if the, uh, the uh, party was abandoning the argument and complaint with a heightened duty as a passenger, and and the uh, advocate said, "No, we just don't think heightened is needed here." Um, Judge Justice Coughlin, I think, asked the question because there was uh, there's disputed facts. I think, in terms of whether uh, the conductor uh, was in fact going 35 miles an hour when she entered, um, there's was discussion that it looked like she'd slowed down, and so it wasn't quite accurate that it was still 35 miles per hour. Uh, but well, the, she the, certainly wasn't doing 35 when she struck him. It's right. when she enters the station and then well, she but, begins to slow down from there. But he, Justice Coughlin even asked that. She said it, it appeared that she had started to slow down. That was her deposition. So who knows, right? I mean, it's it may be a few miles per hour. But the, the as Pat said, the, these stations are long. Um, and uh, what what happened here is is again, I don't know if, the, if if the guy had a medical thing. It was unclear from the testimony. No one knows. But he was kind of staggering. He but he was at midpoint. He was he was pretty far back from the from the uh, front of the platform uh, when she entered the station. Um, the reason she said she didn't uh, blast her horn was because at the time, right, he, when she entered the station, she had visibility. He was still behind a blue line. And, you know, one of the things that I think most train conductors, I take Metro a lot, you know, they, they try to not use the horn unnecessarily because it's it's can be jarring very loud and we so we also don't want people to get immune to it that right? just well right just, every you time you just to, blow the horn when you come in every station right right and people and, just ignore it you want them to pay attention to it when it happens because it doesn't happen all that often right and uh um they, they talked about um one, one of the things that the, that the uh, council for cta argued uh, in this case um, is, is that uh, personal vehicle cases and those duties were not apropos here. And then on rebuttal, uh, she, in fact, used one of those cases. She said, well, the, they cite this case in their briefs. And, and Justice Hyman said, whoa, time out. Uh, you cannot uh, have it both ways, right? Either you don't use those cases or you do. Um, you, you talked about Pat that there's a case but her, her response was that even under the even if you do give him right. credit when you look at that case it helps it's, me it doesn't it help helps him. me right that's what she was she was referring to it because it actually helps the CTA's position dealing with how quickly you can react um right. and you know is there enough time that even if yes so they said we had two seconds or four seconds okay that's once you apply the brake or sound the horn you first have to get to the point of realizing there's a problem and then react, you know, press the horn, apply the emergency brake. There's time, you know, so there's time before it right. even gets activated. Um, right. And you'd have to be superhuman under these circumstances, I think. And there was also, at, at, uh, as you said, there was a lot of uh, depositions and discovery in this case. 
one of the people was the general manager of safety, and they talked about about the four factors of the duty and kind of the procedures of the of the CTA. Uh, one of the things he apparently said in his deposition uh, was that on a daily basis, there's people that are close to the edge, and and uh, one of the justices retorted back, "Every day this happens. Like, is that really the case?" Um, the the advocate for the CTA again kind of said, "You know, there's a million writers a day, or whatever the number is, and." These are these are more rare, so it's not exactly um, it's it's not that prevalent of a of a situation. You know, one one of the things that that was also talked about here uh, extensively uh, is the open and obvious uh, doctrine, uh, which says that if, if something is so obvious to a reasonable person, uh, right, that that you can't then uh, if something happens to you, you can't then say, well, you know, we don't uh, have a duty. It goes duty. to the duty. It's a duty right. question, and right. and that's important because there was a lot of discussion about the regulations that they didn't follow the regulations, right. and the point that counsel for the CTA kept coming back to is, hold it, the the regulations don't form the duty. The court determines the duty, right. not the regulations. Those do not they do not form and cannot impose a duty. Um, once there is a duty then we can look at whether we violated them or not. But they aren't relevant in the first instance in determining the duty. That's what the court's job is. And Hyman even, he, Justice Hyman even went to that a right. couple of times. And hold right. it, that's great, but that doesn't form the duty. Right. Um, plaintiff's counsels are really uh, you know, after that particular theory. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> For obvious and, reasons. Right. And so so you have that. Um, uh, w- one of the things we, we talk about repeatedly in this podcast, Pat, is the standard of review and Justice Hyman again reminded uh, the advocate, right, that uh, on a 2619, uh, it's de novo. And so, really looking at uh, it, issues uh, fresh and anew. Um, it, it's, uh, and as you said, there were regulations and procedures, but again, uh, there, there's a skeleton case that, that was talked about extensively uh, that seemed to have very similar facts 250 feet. You know, same same facts. The person was in that case had had been using alcohol. Like I said, in this case, we don't know what the what uh, Mr. Pryor's uh, if he had a medical condition or what what happened. Um, you know, it's uh, you know just, just listening to this, you can infer some things, but again, it's it's hard to tell. You know, he could have had a serious medical issue and and, and fell. Um, it's uh, uh, an interesting case, I think, and and and. Um, as you mentioned, there, there's a case that uh, a PLA was granted by the Supreme Court. So they're here, um, and, and there were real questions about whether you know this court should wait to uh, find out what the Supreme Court of Illinois does on on uh, some of these issues. Because um, as as we've talked about it before as well, you know, if they decide this case and then uh, that that case comes out differently than they would have done. Is it an exercise that's kind of a waste of effort um, because it'll just get reversed if it's opposite of what the Supreme Court then decides? So, Pat, did you you wanted to make a yeah, I want to I want to put this in here. Yeah, I want to put so, put this in some context, particularly with regards to the Kiros case. So, the Kiros case, PLA was granted on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. So, this argument had plainly already been set. Had they known that PLA was granted, they may have delayed. And likely would have delayed hearing of this case until the Kiros case was decided, but they'd already scheduled it. Right. That's the first thing. So then we have a couple other cases we need to talk about. We've got the Anderson case versus CTA. Now, as Justice Hyman pointed out during the argument, two of the three panelists 
on that day, on that day, had been on in the majority or and had had ruled on Anderson. Now, what happened in Anderson? Now, Anderson is a situation where the person did have a medical condition. It was up in Evanston at the Davis Street stop, I think, and the person's wandering around. Uh, on the platform for like 45 minutes or so. They got all kinds of video on it. And all of a sudden he goes into the right away and gets electrocuted and dies. So a different situation here than where the person was killed by the train. And so they're, they're, the position was, is the CTA does not have to spend, you know, money having thousands of people monitoring all of its platforms and all of its buses, finding all the ill and otherwise disturbed people that go on the CTA and prevent them from, uh, you going going into the right away and getting electrocuted. Fine, that's different than this case, to be sure. It is, uh, but only slightly, because so that brings us to the Kiros case. So in Kiros, the person goes into the right away. They walk down the the tra- down the tunnel, and they go basically curl up and sleep in one of the uh, one of the cubbies. Now the allegation is is that at some point he was seen, so he was a discovered trespasser. And then he gets killed by being hit by a train. So that's somewhat more like this situation where discovered, but the, the allegation in Kiros is he had been discovered by like seven other trainmen before the appellate or the appellate court described right. those allegations because this got dismissed on a 615, which is the Illinois equivalent of a 12B6, as fanciful, but we have to take it as true. So they survive. So that's the case they took a PLA on. And the question is, and it did not get addressed by the appellate court, didn't even get addressed. Right. The open and obvious argument, not addressed. The four factors, burden and so forth, not addressed. They only looked at it on discovered trespasser. So the CTA is trying to fight a broader battle. There is nothing more open and obvious than a moving train. Right. You know, they t- they compared it to bodies of water, to trampolines, that, and that's distinct from automobiles. That a body of water, a trampoline, a train, a moving train, is as open and obvious as it can be. You take yourself into the and the right away, and, and distinct from a car which can go all over the place and doesn't have tracks where it's fixed to go. A right. train is fixed; it goes here. Everyone knows where it goes, right there. The other thing that's distinct is a case called Lee versus CTA, which is an Illinois Supreme Court case from 1992. Now, in that case, it dealt with a person who did not speak English and couldn't read the sign about the third rail. Yep. And the court held the CTA was liable in that circumstance, not because he was a discovered trespasser, but because there was a dangerous condition on the land that he couldn't have been warned, that he wasn't properly warned of. Like, people don't know there's the third rail. It's a little goofy. So it's, right. again, a little different than this situation where the person is hit by the train. So... Uh, and and so they're trying to argue that the plaintiff is in in this case the uh, the prior case that he is a um, and that's prior P R Y O R the prior case trying to argue that he's a discovered trespasser and therefore is owed a duty um, and, and not just and not subject to the open and obvious uh, doctrine. So that's kind of putting the case in the broader context of what the CTA is really up to uh, and what they're really fighting about. Uh, given where the Supreme, because we'll cover the Kiros case when it gets argued. Yeah. And uh, that will be till the late spring, at least, because um, the PLA was just granted. So very interesting and important case, uh, because as Dan said, there's about a million people that ride the CTA every day and you got to, uh, it, it's, it's, trains are dangerous. So, yeah. so with that, we'll take our next break and come back with an unusual third segment, but uh, we think you're going to have some fun with it.
Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment three of episode 69 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. As we noted, we've covered the three cases. Today, we're going to, in the third segment, we're going to speak about the Seventh Circuit and four COVID-19 arguments and results and decisions that came out uh, last week. Uh, Insurers are now five for five in COVID-19 insurance coverage cases before federal appellate courts. Uh, Why don't you uh, tell us a bit about the Seventh Circuit and uh, the circuits they joined uh, Pat, we'll talk about the four cases. Thanks, Dan. Uh, so the Seventh Circuit joined the Sixth, Eighth, Ninth, and Eleventh Circuits, all holding that a physical alteration does not occur when there is COVID nineteen, and therefore there is not direct physical loss um, in that circumstance. The First, Second, and Tenth have oral arguments that are pending, and the Seventh Circuit has one that got er- argued earlier last month. Now, that's all very interesting and great but it ain't going to matter to the state court start ruling. Now, there right. have been state court rulings in both the in both California and Ohio, and the Ohio Supreme Court is hearing a case on February 8th that was certified to them by the by a judge in the Northern District of Ohio. So the rubber is going to begin to meet the road here pretty quick if yep. the state courts start going opposite of the uh, of the federal courts. So, we discussed in this opinion, this case or these cases there were the panel was judges Wood, Hamilton, and Mannion. And Judges Wood and Hamilton had their had their hypothetical about the tornado and the, and the fence and the, the all fence, the earthquake yep. and all this. And Judge Mannion just is like, the building to get damaged, did it? I'm done. <laughs> so this is very interesting the way these opinions got written. Judge Wood, former chief judge of the circuit, Judge Wood wrote, I think, what's the lead opinion? Uh, San, the Sandy Point Dental, which is the consolidated right. Cincinnati case, the San, Cincinnati case. Judge Hamilton wrote two of the opinions, and he cited to and adopted it, adopted her reasoning. Judge Mannion doesn't refer to her reasoning. <laughs> he, in his opinion, Masala. He he took the one. So let's start with that one, Judge Mannion, because it's kind of on its side. And, and I'm going to kick it back to Dan on on the mutual insurance issue. So Judge Mannion says. Yeah, it's not covered. And oh, by the way, there's a virus exclusion, and that's easy. And oh, by the way, this there's this mutual. They made this claim about needing to rebate premiums. So, Dan, tell us about this theory that uh, you were skeptical of at the argument, and what Judge Mannion did with that on the uh, on the mutual uh, insurance issue and rebating the premium. You know more about this than I do. Sure. So, so as we talked about on the podcast uh, when it when we did it, and as I've talked about over the years. Uh, mutual insurance companies are kind of like a credit union or, or savings and loan back in the day. They the uh, Let's hope they're a little is, more solvent than those. But uh, they're they're more solvent in, in general. Although look at lumbermen, anything's you know. more solvent. <laughs> but well, you know, look at lumbermen, so and a couple of other major yeah. ones that collapsed. But that's been years ago. Yeah. Um, so, so so some have argued, um, and there are some theories. If you demutualize, like in Connecticut. You have to pay back the the mutual holders, uh, but the the position and you and you hear sometimes on the radio ads that say you know you're you're 
uh, as a mutual owner, you're you're an owner of the company. Um, the, the the reality though is 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 as a, a mutual uh, policyholder, you you get to vote on the board. Nobody ever does. They they the most mutual companies have at least ten officers and, and employees as as the board, so they have a quorum. Um, and so the th- real theory of a mutual company is is that you just have you you may get some uh, uh, mutual benefits of like on the life side if you're Northwestern Mutual, you know they always talk about the dividends and you get dividends back in your policy, uh, but you really don't you're not an owner. It's it's really a collective like you know it it just is the concept is is that you know you're not you don't have stock, uh, you're not a like a typical corporation so. Um, um, and so we talked about that on the show because one of the arguments was that, yeah, there's some rebate owing uh, as an owner, right, that you didn't get the benefit of the bargain. And uh, as we talked about, you know, very skeptical on that. And as it turns out, uh, that was right. So so let's go back to the main issue, which is the direct physical loss. And the court basically said, that it, 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 I'm not going to go through it chapter and verse, but essentially that it's not direct physical loss. The other thing they looked at in a variety of these opinions, we mentioned the Briars exclusion. Judge uh, Hamilton looked at in one of the cases, the loss of use and, and ordinance or law exclusion and said that's not covered, that those also defeated coverage. And then in the Crescent Hotel case, he also said the microorganism exclusion applied yeah. because there's an argument that a virus is not an organism because it doesn't live and doesn't have a cellular structure. Right. Therefore, it's not a microorganism. And he's like, any reasonable person reading a microorganism exclusion is going to think a virus is a micro microorganism and not know anything about the debate amongst biologists about whether it's an organism or not. Okay, uh, bully for insurers. Yeah, yeah that. Well, and he 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 may be out on, on his own on that because again, I think most most judges and most people would would again. There, there's been a lot of disagreement on that, but again. For, for, the, the other thing is, is that that was really dicta because he had already was. found that it wasn't covered under the insurance right. agreement. He's just making comment, basically. Right. But they did it on all of them just to say, right. hey, we're going to comment on everything. Right. I think an idea to give direction to the district courts, right. um, which I think is going to have an effect. There are two MDLs that are consolidated in the Northern District of Illinois, Society and Hartford. Yep. Uh, and both denied, both the district court judges in those cases denied motions to dismiss. I think I got that right. You're and. Right. So I, I think they're going to have to take another look. Um, I, I, I can I can hear the the paper being sent over to Judge Chang, who has who has a society one. Judge Chang, uh, excuse me, um, I think you should dismiss our case now. Uh, I can imagine is is the nature of the pleading that they're filing. Yeah. So uh, big doings, uh, but still more to come. Uh, this is not over. This is like the end of the beginning, as opposed right. to the beginning of the end. This is the end of the beginning. Yep. I wish it were the end, but it's not. It's not. Uh, and, and again, um, as, as we've talked about, I mean, all the cases that are at the course of appeals are cases where uh, motions to dismiss were granted because if motions to dismiss are denied, uh, you, you have other issues. But we saw in Casey Hopps uh, uh, that result uh, that will get appealed. That's the trial unfair, in the Western but, District of Missouri yeah, for those that, right, that don't right, know what he's talking about. Yeah. Right. And, and uh, so... More, and there also uh, was a trial, the first trial that was tried in state court down in yeah, New Orleans. Right. Uh, that was tried last year. So there's that one too. That was um, the, the original case that was filed. Yeah. So. All right. So that brings us to our, our uh, prediction sure to go wrong for this week. Campbell yeah. Henry versus Good Samaritan. Is that case going to stay dismissed? At least against the hospital. I think so, based on the pleadings. 
It's the fifth district. I know. I, I think it's going to get reversed. I think okay. I think I, I I think it's getting reversed. It's the, well, the I, I still have I still have faith in the fifth district. There you go. <laughs> well, this 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 may equalize the the split. Yeah, we have. it could. It we'll be or, back or, or, or make it worse. Reasons or make it worse, but yeah, yeah. Uh, and then Brown versus Mercy Hospital. I, Justice I Cobbs it, didn't seem to be buying it. I, I don't. She didn't, but I, I I'm still going to say this gets affirmed. I think it does get affirmed because I, I think the result would be given this language it, 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 yeah. in the agreement. And then uh, the CTA case, prior versus CTA. Uh, I, I, I think it gets affirmed. I or, think it gets affirmed too. Yeah. I think it gets affirmed. And then we'll I, see it. Because I, I, I think it gets affirmed for two reasons. Number one, I think it gets affirmed because I think that the video is going to carry the debt. I think Number so. two, if they wait, as I think that's where you were going, I think it's going to get affirmed because I think Kiros is going to get reversed because the Supreme Court did not take Kiros to say nothing. Right. They took Kiros to say something. Right. And I think what they're going to say is the open and obvious doctrine is alive and well. That was what the argument was on the PLA to get them to take it. And I think that they're going to reinvigorate the I mean, I hope they are. Or they could have taken it to do something entirely different that I don't like. But I think they took it to say, no, no, no. A moving train is an open and obvious condition. And you don't get to curl up inside the train tunnel and then complain right. to get hit by the train. And I, 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 I and I think with the makeup of the current court and stuff, and I think, again, yeah, I, I, I think you're right. We'll see. Yep. Well, it makeup of the court, it may change by the time that case gets ruled on. So sure, again. There's, that's, you know, they redrew those districts for a reason. Right. Um, Right. So that brings us to our rule of the week. I'm going to put in up air quotes. You can't see it, but uh, air right. quotes. We're going to have some fun. Uh, we found there have been some recent uh, goings on uh, in the courts and have been led to some amusing things and some views of things and some interesting things. So the first one is Bork, B-O-U-R-K-E versus United States and the inimitable Justice or I'm sorry, Judge Easterbrook. Uh, so let me get this queued up. We're going to play several segments here. Let me get this queued up and uh, get ready to be entertained. Mr. Flaxman. Good morning, Your Honor. Um, let me start out by acknowledging the professionalism of Assistant U.S. Attorney Hancock for calling the attention of the court to the recent decision of the Ninth Circuit in Hawkins versus United States. That came in on Friday. We filed the response on, I think, Saturday. Or it came in on Wednesday. We filed the response on Saturday. Uh, Hawkins accepts and applies the legal theory urged by appellant in this case. It's coming. Just wait. It is that the that helps you or hurts you? It helps us. It endorses. It, it accepts our theory that the FECA only bars medical malpractice claims that arose in treatment of an FECA-covered injury. No, I don't think you got the gist of my question. Does the fact that the Ninth Circuit has accepted your theory help you or hurt you? Well, um, I, I, I recall some judges on this court uh, guffawing about the Ninth Circuit and saying they're always wrong, but the Ninth Circuit... <laughs> so never let it be said that the, just, the judges on the Seventh Circuit don't have a sense of humor and you better be ready to exercise it. Number one, 
and number two, that they have respect for their fellows in the Ninth Circuit. <laughs> no, no, number three, uh, uh, Easterbrook failed to admonish him for being generalist. FEC yeah. used twice. Exactly. Yeah, he was right. too busy with the Ninth Circuit. Does it help you? But let's get to the rule. And the rule really is not that the Ninth Circuit, he goes on, Flaxman does, who's a very, very uh, prominent advocate here in, in, in Chicago. Flaxman goes on to say, you know, there's been a change in the makeup of the Ninth Circuit, and, and you can, they're more reliable now. And I know you guys have said you don't think so. But, you know, now they're more reliable. But the rule really is, is what the AUSA did in citing the case that was controlling precedent or not controlling, but was precedent on issue. He cites it. Now, as we've talked about before, sometimes you cite a case because you want to distinguish it. Is that the other side is going to cite it. So you cite it first and you say, this is new. It's distinguishable, though. I don't think that's what happened here. I think he was legitimately citing it because it was on point and he had an obligation to I think he thought he had an obligation to cite it. Um, and the Seventh Circuit, as we talked about before, uh, you better be prepared with crap like that. If that had come down, uh, if they were there on a Monday morning and they handed down an opinion on Friday afternoon and you don't know about it, they go, excuse me, you don't follow our, our decisions? Happens all the time. It does. All the time in that court. All right. So... Let me see if I can get queued up the next one. Uh, you're you're going to like this one. This is this is a little different. Uh, th this is a little different in the um, uh, in, in the humor category and, and a little different rule. But uh, let me get this queued up here and again be prepared to have some fun. Defendants, Mr. Debeldi, uh, I don't want you to get off on the wrong foot but either straighten your tie so that it goes all the way to your neck or get that button. Oh, sorry. <laughs> at least he wasn't a cat. At least he wasn't a cat, but he didn't have a straight tie. The, judge, <laughs> the justice goes on and says to him, uh, you know, if I have to have a tie on, then you got to have a tie on, right? And we're all going to be uncomfortable together. Uh, so, so there's that. Um, not happy. Um, then we also have from the four. So, so I actually was in court the other day and a lawyer showed up in an open, either an open collar or like a mock turtleneck and no jacket. And the court, you know, some judges are okay with it, but this, we were in zoom to be sure we weren't in person and, and, and he didn't have a tie in sight and this and that. And he, you know, the judge admonished him that he expects coat and a tie even on zoom. Um, when I have had the circumstance where I have been had coat or tie, I have taken to judge, I don't have a coat and tie and here's why I apologize. I recognize it's my fault and you're not going to like that. And usually they're okay with that, but you got, it's another of those situations front, the, you know, front, the front, the issue you, you pull the pin on the grenade right. in case of a problem. Um, the, yeah, that's not how you want to start your day with the judge telling you, uh, dress right. Uh, so here's another one, uh, of something not to do at arguments. Uh, in a case, also in the uh, also in the fourth district here in Illinois, um, let me get this queued up. And in other words, this is the, the preview: is make sure you make all your arguments and don't raise new things at oral argument. Right. So get this queued up, and this will be this will be fun too. Or not, as the case may be. 
me tr me try this again. It doesn't want to start, so bear with me. The, the, the comedy on this one apparently is, is I can't get the technology to work. <laughs> but I, I've done several in a row here, so maybe that's the reason why. All right, take two. You're hearing, you're seeing the sausage, or at least hearing the sausage get made, folks. For the renter is a resident. It's working. However, the policy clearly distinguishes a difference between a tenant and a resident. And there's no definition of what it is. Council, and, and I apologize if I have missed it, but did you ever argue in your brief any confusion caused by two different residences, one in Pennsylvania and one here? Well, I think it goes to the ambiguity. Okay, and I'm, I'm sorry. The question is a yes or no answer, honestly. Yeah. Did you so, ever argue there was an ambiguity based on there being two different residences in two different geographic locations? And honestly, I, perhaps I just missed it. I, I would say, Your Honor, um, as we prepare for oral argument, a trial, um, we were able to, to further um, narrow down the issues. And okay, that's so not narrow. I, if it wasn't clear to the court, um, I, would, I would ask the court to consider that under um, under the rules that allow for um, that specific issue to be uh, considered by the court. Counsel, um, wait a minute. Your, your, the argument has now asked you twice. The question calls for a yes or no answer. I'd like to hear the answer. Yeah. You haven't yet answered it. Yes. When you're so, asked the question yes. for a yes or no answer, first my please answer yes or no. Yeah. I'm willing to explain it if there's an explanation needed. Yes. Uh, no, I don't think it was specifically laid out as clearly as I am right now. You might so this recalls the rule. Uh, there's a couple rules here. Number one, as I mentioned in the preamble, that you know, make sure you make your arguments in your brief, but also it recalls um, ju uh, Judge Holler from My Cousin Vinny. <laughs> At this point in the proceedings, uh, it's time for your client to tell us how you plead, guilty or not guilty. I don't want to hear. I don't want to hear anything. Uh, I don't want to hear anything else. I don't hear you hear clear your throat, other than guilty or not guilty. Otherwise, you're being contempt of court. To which Vinny, of course, says, "I think I get the point." To which Judge Holler says, "I don't think that you do." Do you want to go <laughs> counts of contempt of court? Uh, and of course, then it's not guilty. And I forgot the best part of that line, which is, or do you want to skip the whole procedure because you find yourself in the unique position of having of representing a client who says he didn't do it? Uh, <laughs> yep. So uh, another set of rules. Many lessons here. Many lessons many in this here, and and I will close this part by saying, but for the grace of God, go I. Um, that is that is all I can say when it comes to this particular uh, set of items because Lord knows I have I will do this one one of these things one of these days and that will not be what I am intending to do but uh, I'm not laughing at them I'm trying to simply say uh, try not to um, uh, try, try not to find yourself in this situation. Which brings us to our last one, and shout out to uh, 
shout out to uh, Amy Johnson of Hepler Broom, who posted a case we talked about previously, uh, Oasis Legal versus Chodes, which was our rule of the week. Now, normally we don't have a follow-up to the rule of the week, right. but this one we did. Now, if you recall, this is one where opposing counsel didn't show up uh, at the oral argument, and the issue was uh, fees, uh, or costs rather, uh, for dismissal of the appeal. The appellate or the Seventh Circuit, I don't know how Amy got this particular ruling, but because it's not on the website, um, it's not in the non-precedential decisions, but it's an order. So the order is maybe that's why. When the appeal of this case was called for oral argument on October 25th, 2021, Farva Jaffrey, representing appellants, did not appear. We issued the order the next day requiring her to show cause why she should not face professional discipline. Oh, oh they're serious. Yeah. <laughs> Judge Easterbrook, right. Judge Rover, yeah. Judge Wood are serious. Jaffrey's response states that she relied on counsel for opposing litigants to represent the joint view of all parties. And she then chastises opposing counsel for what she calls an accurate, an accurate statement about the settlement, how that settlement handles appellate costs and fees. One major problem with this approach is that the court's power, not that of the counsel, to decide when a case requires argument, as our order to show cause recited, and it goes on. Some formal response is necessary. We therefore reprimand Jaffrey for, for neglect of her duties to this court. This is a public reprimand, which Jaffrey must report whenever call called on to disclose her disciplinary history. Whoa. Wow. They were happy with this or her response. In other words, when something like this happens, I'm sorry might have gone a long way with the court and then corrected whatever the error was, blaming right. a counsel is not going to cut the mustard. So no. here's another rule for you um, on, a, on a week full of crazy rules. Dan, is there anything else we need to uh, we need to add to this? I don't think so. I, I, I think quite a bit quite quite a quite a bit indeed. So with that, thank you for joining the show. We'll be back next week with a uh, with another episode of the podium and panel podcast. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.